0: welcome to canada's most irreverent talk show this is the andrew lawton show brought to you by true north
1: hello and welcome to you all another live edition of canada's most irreverent talk show this is the andrew lawton show on true north on this wednesday october 18th 2023 we are coming to you live in the midst of a bit of a strange standoff between israel and hamas and i'm not talking about the conflict that has uh, taken several lives now instigated by hamas and its brutal attacks on israeli civilians a week and a half ago but i'm talking about this uh, he said she said about who was responsible for this massive attack, an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza. Now, targeting civilians, targeting a hospital is illegal. It is incredibly wrong morally, forgetting about norms and standards in international law. And as you saw from some of the headlines, an Israeli attack on the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital claimed 500 lives. Now, this was a narrative that took hold. You very quickly saw condemnations of this from uh, people all over the place, including in Canada, and certainly including the media. And it was interesting, for example, this is CBC's original headline headline, on this whole thing. Hundreds killed in Israeli airstrike on Gaza City Hospital, Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza says. Now, they're attributing to the claim, but when they credit the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, they're crediting Hamas. Anytime someone quotes a so-called official in Gaza at any department of government, they are quoting Hamas. So the media, which would normally be skeptical about things, or at least should be, was taking Hamas at face value, notably the very serious claim that an Israeli airstrike killed hundreds at a hospital in Gaza. The New York Times also went for this. Now, in their case, they went through several iterations of this, in which, uh, at first, they took the claim at face value in the same way that CBC did, and then they walked back a little bit more, and then they walked back beyond that. Oh, yeah, you get the whole before, after, and after that. Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. At least 500 dead in strike on Gaza Hospital, Palestinians say, and at least 500 dead in blast at Gaza Hospital, Palestinians say. So by the time you get to the end of it, it was just a blast that took place. It wasn't an Israeli airstrike or an airstrike at all. It's not something we can lay at Israel's feet now let's talk about the facts of this because yesterday we heard a condemnation from justin trudeau that was very deliberately i think nondescript about what it was he was actually condemning take a look
2: the uh, news coming out of uh, of gaza is uh, horrific and absolutely unacceptable um, international humanitarian and, and international law Needs to be respected uh, in, in this and in all cases. There are rules around wars, and it's not acceptable. The hospital-
1: His rhetoric suggests this was an act of war, not just a byproduct of war. Again, very notable there. Melanie Jolie, who is Canada's foreign affairs minister, at least purportedly, had this to say on Twitter Bombing a hospital is an unthinkable act, and there is no doubt that doing so is absolutely illegal. At the risk of getting too hell-bent on semantics, bombing a hospital. This refers to an act that is, one might argue in her framing of it, deliberate or at the very least active, rather than accidental. A caveat I put in there for a very particular reason. Now, some people are not as measured with their words. The National Council of Canadian Muslims uh, came out guns blazing in its rhetoric on this. If you look at the tweet from the NCCM yesterday, a Canadian Muslim advocacy group. What you are watching here is a heinous act of ethnic cleansing by the Israeli military. 500 people killed in a single airstrike on Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City. Will every Canadian politician clearly condemn this horrific act of violence? There is a very serious and very deliberate and very specific allegation there. Now, that was in the evening. We have a bit more daylight today in Gaza and in Israel. We can see very clearly what happened and where it happened. Let's look at this tweet from Elliot Higgins. That is the parking lot adjacent to the hospital, which has cars still very much in it, I might add, in the aftermath of this so-called Israeli airstrike on the hospital. Let's look at uh, Visegrad 24, which has this picture of the wreckage and carnage. I have seen potholes bigger than that. I have seen potholes on my city streets, which have never been, to my knowledge, subject to an Israeli airstrike, than that so-called crater that Gaza has tried to say is an Israeli airstrike on a hospital that killed 500 people. Now, the facts of this suggest, and the IDF, which obviously is a belligerent in this conflict, but the IDF shared intercepted audio of two Hamas officials in which one of them learns from the other that it was their own rocket. It was a misfire of a Hamas rocket fired from behind the hospital, fired from a cemetery, by the way, which to Hamas is completely fair game to use as a rocket launching pad that misfired and fell splat in the hospital parking lot. Thankfully, there were no 500 casualties, there were no hospital bombings, there were no strikes, and there was certainly nothing of the allegations of Israel's conflict and complicity in this that was at all to blame. It was a misfired rocket by Hamas that created a pothole in a parking lot that the media and the political class ran with as being some evidence of Israeli war crimes. Now, I mentioned the comments yesterday from Justin Trudeau and from Melanie Jolie. Uh, Even this morning, Liberal cabinet ministers were not exactly being circumspect in their remarks. This was a tweet from Minister François-Philippe Champagne, who says, The attack on the Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza is horrifying and against international humanitarian law. My thoughts are with the victims and their loved ones. Let's be clear, there can be no justification to strike a hospital nor civilians. That was at 6.51 a.m. this morning Eastern Time. Uh, Hours and hours after, it became abundantly clear that the airstrike on this hospital simply did not exist and any inflicted damage was actually the consequence of Hamas, which deliberately puts its civilians in harm's way. But it was their own actions and nothing by the state of Israel that was to blame for this. Now, to go back to the CBC and the New York Times and the Toronto Star is no exception to this, Uh, they all come out with the explosive allegation and then the edits take place a little bit more subtly and quietly after the fact. Maybe they append an editor's note on the story, but that is the extent of it. I received yesterday push notifications alerting me to this horrific act, and uh, only this morning I got one push notification, to its credit, from the Toronto Star, acknowledging that they had made an error or at least had clarified their previous reporting on this, had clarified their headline. We saw lots of public proclamations from the Liberal government, from Conservatives, even from some New Democrats, from journalists, calling out Hamas's brutality a week and a half ago. Because when we were confronted with the actions of Hamas kidnapping hostages, uh, killing seniors and babies, raping women and teenagers, uh, it was easy for everyone to stand up, you'd think, and say, Hamas is absolutely in the wrong here. But as time goes on and as the story shifts from those initial attacks into a conflict that appears on the surface to be a more conventional war, uh, the benefit of the doubt that Israel was given by people in those first couple of days has been eroded. And I'm not to say there aren't legitimate criticisms we can make about Israel and its response to things like this. I am not at all going to give the IDF carte blanche because Israelis were targeted by horrific acts of violence. There are still rules pertaining to proportionality, and there are still laws which are not in an international context as authoritative as people might think, but they nevertheless do exist. But what's missing from the story every time this comes up is all of the efforts through which Israel goes to be proportional to urge citizens to evacuate or to be evacuated rather, to urge uh, entire parts of this territory to evacuate. This is what Israel goes out of its way to do. It's Hamas that tells people, no, stay put, do not leave because Hamas is the one that wants dead Palestinians more than Israel does. In fact, that is Hamas's entire MO, to have more dead Gazans so that they can turn around and point to Israel as being the enemy rather than the Hamas terrorist thugs who put their young, their women, their children, all of them directly in harm's way. So it's particularly disgusting when you see people in Western leadership positions that should know this full well, that start to drink the Kool Aid, even if they attempt to measure their words, which is not a react, uh, not a relative uh, product of them having a nuanced position, but is in fact a byproduct of them wanting to pretend to have a nuanced and non-extreme position. I will draw your attention to this comment by NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. And I should point out, I always, always, always have to caution whenever we talk about Jugmeet Singh to say that I, I don't want to mistake him for being relevant, but it was noteworthy and revealing when he said this about the conflict in the Middle East right now.
0: International law must be upheld and respected. Make no mistake, Collective punishment is a violation of this law. Canada must insist that all those who broke these laws are held accountable. Even those nations we have called friends. Canada must call for a ceasefire to end the killing of innocent civilians in Gaza immediately. We cannot allow for the continuing dehumanization of an entire population. When we stop seeing each other as humans, when we stop believing that each life has value, this is when the seeds of genocide
2: take hold.
1: The seeds of genocide take hold. Now, if you listen very carefully, he's not coming out and making any accusation about anyone. He's not talking about Israel. He's not talking about Gaza. He's not talking about Hamas. He's just saying generally. He's just throwing it out there. And if anyone did anything like this, then, well, that should be condemned. When he talks about collective punishment, he's uh, not actually condemning Hamas's uh, decision to collectively punish Israelis. He's condemning Israel's decision to cut off power and water supply to Gaza for a time. So he's directing his scorn towards Israel, not towards the Hamas terrorist thugs. When he talks about sowing the seeds of genocide, I'm not in his mind, but I do not believe he is talking about the attempted extermination of the Jewish people, which is a stated mandate of Hamas in its charter. They literally put in writing their goal to wage war against Jews, to take up jihad and to annihilate the state of Israel. No, he's talking about Israel's self-defense. That's what he believes is, quote, sowing the seeds of genocide. The last couple of days have showed us that uh, politicians will, when absolutely confronted with unequivocal evil, perhaps say the right thing. But when the dust settles, when the bodies cool, when the carnage is less apparent and in your face than it is in those early days, they go back to their natural resting position, which is an utter contempt for Israel and an utter disregard for the realities of the ground and for Israel's right as a nation to defend itself against a people who want it destroyed, a people who want it dead. That is not a description of the entirety of the Palestinian people. It is a description of the governing authority in Hamas, however, and the country that we see defending itself will try to save those civilians when its own so-called government wants them in jeopardy. And I didn't have the clip for today, but there was a, a Liberal member of Parliament, uh, Samir Zubari, who is a, a backbencher. But he was just, I mean, very emotional this morning on his way into the National Caucus meeting for the Liberals as he speaks about, uh, If he said the exact quote here, if I was behind an artillery cannon and I knew this would fall on hospitals and schools, I would not... Push that trigger, and he was again being very careful with his words. He was asked, "Are you accusing Israel?" He's, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, saying one way or another, but you have all of these people that are trying to pretend that Israel is the guilty party of this, that Israel is the instigator, that Israel is the ethnic cleanser, that Israel, Israel is the genocider of this." To create a word that I, I wish I didn't have to, but that is nowhere near the case. And it is a fundamental rejection of every bit of reality. Now, I don't have a lot of time for Joe Biden. In fact, when I say the date at the beginning of the show, I think even that would have lost Joe Biden. He doesn't know where he is or what day it is at any given time. But his government has been remarkably lucid on Israel, which I think is very important. And the U.S. uh, has come out and said, look, they've seen the intelligence and there is no information supporting at all the idea that Israel was behind this strike. We've had unequivocal denials from the IDF, from the Israeli government. And you may say, well, they're biased. We can't take them at face value. No, but it's also going to be the case that these people are not going to say something that can be proven false by objective evidence. And if Israel wanted to destroy that hospital, it would be leveled to the ground right now. So who do you trust more? I mean, even if you don't like Israel, Who do you think has a more capable military force, Israel or Hamas? It is far more plausible that Hamas accidentally uh, misfired a rocket and blew up, you know, three square feet of a parking lot. That is a lot more easy to believe than the fact that Israel uh, tried to blow up a hospital and, uh, you know, couldn't manage to get, you know, six inches below the surface of the pavement. So uh, that is absolutely what we're seeing here. And again, this is all contextual here. I've been talking about the political and media response where people, at least on the surface, believe they shouldn't be condemning Israel and defending, those who want to annihilate Israel. But if you take a walk out to your neighborhood protest, you'll find it's an entirely defensible and normal position in a lot of cities to stand up there and hold signs that celebrate death death to the Jews and that celebrate... Hamas attacks against Israel. One of these rallies took place over uh, the weekend. We saw a number of them. We also saw another one in Toronto yesterday, which my colleague Harrison Faulkner uh, took some time out to see here. And he's also covered a number of these protests. Uh, Harrison, it's uh, good to talk to you. I mean, What is the actual tone there? Because I know that we all can point to the one crazy sign at a protest and try to extrapolate from that. But these don't seem to be outliers from all of these things that I've seen. These seem to be relatively mainstream positions, these more extremist slogans and sentiments.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say, Andrew, that there is a lot of anger at these crowds. They seem to be growing and the tone seems to be shifting. I think when I was on the ground on the 9th, uh, that that Monday protest at Nathan Phillips Square, uh, there was a lot of anger there, but last night was different. I mean, one of the things you heard was the people leading the protest saying that Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, and Olivia Chow had blood on their hands for what happened at, at the Gaza Hospital, uh, and and I think in general for their support of Israel. They also would go through the list of all world leaders in the West and saying that they have blood on their hands for what's happening to Palestinians right now in Gaza. So I think you're right to point out, Andrew, that the tone is shifting at these protests. And what we saw last night in Toronto was something that we saw in, in other part in other parts all over the world yesterday. So it is something worth noting.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really the point here. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we don't want to import uh, very hotly contested conflicts from other countries. I mean, that's you've covered the India file well. I mean, that's one of the biggest failures of Canadian multiculturalism is that we take conflicts from elsewhere and we bring them into Canada. In this particular case, Israel is a very different situation. It is uh, a country in which the global picture matters a great deal because we're talking about countries that recognize Israel's rights uh, under international law Or countries that don't. And and in Canada, it is weird how we're seeing that, as you say, that tone shift where, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday of last week, every politician, even, you know, ones that don't like Israel, knew what they had to say, which was, you know, we condemn Hamas's violence, we support uh, Israel. And now that is shifting for them a lot. And I think these protests are very concerning because it shows that there is a large contingent here that is going to be calling up its members of parliament's offices, calling up the premier, the prime minister, and saying, uh, you know what, I'm not going to vote for you if you support Israel. And I, I don't know who outnumbers whom in this case.
0: Yeah, I think I think it is also worth noting that, yeah, these protests are going to happen they are going to happen again tonight. They had said publicly that they're going to be there every night as long as they can go. Um, And of course, Andrew, you know, these people want to show that they have the public on their side, that they have the majority showing up to these protests. And I think whether we like it or not, protests do have that ability to uh, I, I guess get in the heads of local politicians. Politicians want to be on the side of the public. And I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, one, one thing we did have last night that was worth mentioning, since you brought up the politician element, was you had what what was described as a local first responder wearing what looked like a lab coat, addressing the crowd last night at Blur and Young um, from standing on top of scaffolding telling everyone there that they had to write to their MPs and local politicians to get them to condemn Israel for the bombing of the Gaza hospital. We're not going to get into the different elements of that, but that is what they're trying to get at. They were there last night in response to what happened in Gaza, and they are there trying to get politicians to condemn Israel for this. So there is definitely a politics element to this, of course.
1: The hospital situation is a, a really useful example of, of why this is so difficult. I mean, here we have, and I just spent, you know, the first fifteen minutes of the show going over it. We've got tons of evidence that shows this was misreported. That the media that took Hamas's claims at face value, the politicians who then took the media's reporting at face value, yesterday were wrong. But there are still people that will refuse to let this change their preconceived notions in in the same way that last week, the big source of controversy was whether infants were beheaded by Hamas. And you had people that just said, you know, in spite of the reporting and the evidence, no, there's no way I won't believe it. I, I can't believe it. And that's happening here. And and it is bizarre in a way, yet unsurprising, that we, we see in real time just this complete rejection of truth in support of the narrative. And I mean, Al Jazeera, which is obviously not a, a pro-Israel publication by any stretch, had, and I, I'm going to pull up the headline here because I think it's revealing, what is Israel's narrative on the Gaza hospital explosion? So, like, so right there, they're saying anything Israel says is just propaganda, but anything Hamas says is apparently fine. Yeah, it's it's obviously this is this is
0: something that we didn't we it's not first time we're seeing this of course at the beginning of the Ukraine Russia war we saw things like this happening all over yeah. the place all throughout social media everybody I think would be very wise to understand that we're watching a war take place here involving belligerents who are trying to take the moral high ground for themselves. Uh, we have to be aware of what's of what's happening here and recognize that, of course, the messaging we get from either side is not going to be exactly what they want. Uh, what they want to come out and what the other side wants. People should be uh, should be reasonable when they look at this and recognize we're watching a war. Information that we get from the ground is never going to be exactly accurate, um, and 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 that is what we're going to see here. So because of this, as they said yesterday night at the protest in Toronto. I imagine we're going to see again another protest tonight outside of the Israeli consulate right at Young and Bloor and likely in Mississauga as well. This is going to keep going on because really what we're watching are two sides trying to take the moral high ground from one another. And that's just what that's just, I think, part of this war we have to be aware of.
1: Yeah, no, very well said. Harrison Faulkner, you can catch Ratioed Mondays and Thursdays at True North. So uh, always good to check in with you, Harrison. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. One of the things I will point out about this, I mean, look, if someone wants to protest at the Israeli consulate, that's their right in Canada. And I have always been unequivocally in support of free speech. But one thing I'll point out that I find a little bit interesting here is that there was also, I mentioned yesterday, a big giant conference on anti-Semitism in Ottawa hosted by CJA, the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. CJA has had this on the books for quite some time, not knowing they were going to have this backdrop Against which to have this conference of the conflict in the Middle East. But why this is interesting is that this is still an unobjectionable, uncontroversial idea that we need to stand up for, uh, avoid, well, stand up against anti Semitism. And I should say that when Islamophobia was the discussion we were all having a few years ago around M103, most of the Jewish groups stood up and said, yes, absolutely, let's condemn Islamophobia as long as you guys condemn anti-Semitism. And they all just held hands and said, great, we're friends. And all of those voices that were standing up for the fight against Islamophobia four or five years ago have curiously been silent in the face of anti-Semitism. Uh, that is running rampant and is always the most pervasive form of hatred in this country. And I would point out a few different aspects of this. Uh, One is that the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, I believe, has so far reached day 13 of its silence in the face of these attacks. Day 13. Uh, No, maybe it's day 12. My my apologies. I've already gotten to Thursday here. But uh, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, which gets huge amounts of money from the federal government to be the primary spokesperson and advocate against hate founded by Bernie Farber, has had zero to say about the Israel-Hamas conflict. It's had nothing to say about the nasty death to the Jews signs we see at rallies. It has had nothing to say about any of that. Where are the anti-hate voices? Amira El-Gawabi, formerly the head of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. I have uh, met her, and she's a very lovely woman in person. But she has, uh, when I last checked yesterday, been silent. Her Twitter account has been dormant since this all happened. Now, she is Canada's special envoy on the issue of Islamophobia. You might think that if uh, fighting against hate is something everyone is doing in the trenches together, that she would be there to stand in allyship with Jews that are facing anti-Semitism, when they stood in allyship with her and the NCCM and Muslim voices, when Islamophobia was the discussion. Now, I'm going to put some caveats there in the sense that I do not like the false equivalence of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism because, while there are examples of horrific, uh, bigoted attacks on Muslims, it does not exist to the same way in the same way that anti-Semitism has existed and always will exist unless something significant changes. And uh, by that, I think in the geopolitical context here, we see countries which want to annihilate the Jewish state. We do not have countries that want to annihilate the Arab world. And you can, you know, take whatever jokes you're gonna take about, you know, American foreign policy, but the reality is anti-Semitism is systemic and institutionalized in a way that so called Islamophobia is not. But again, if we are going to take the anti-hate approach, we should condemn all hate equally. And that is not anything that's being done by the official Voices Against Hate in Canada, people who make a great deal of money from the government in doing this. And this sort of forms a natural segue into a discussion I started yesterday, which was about the federal government's goals of re... I don't want to use the word criminalizing because criminal codes are different, but of re-outlawing so-called online hate speech and doing so through human rights law. Now, the one prevailing sense that uh, we all need to get here, that we all need to realize is that if something is illegal offline, it is illegal online. And the government tries to pretend this isn't the case. If it is illegal for you to disseminate child pornography, you can't do that on a computer or on the Internet. If it's illegal for you to threaten violence against someone, you can't do that on the Internet. If it's illegal for you to share non-consensual sexual images of someone, you cannot do that using the Internet. So when the government talks about regulating so-called online harms, What they're talking about doing is regulating a different aspect of things that in most cases are already illegal. And why that's so dangerous in the context of its attack on hate speech is that we already have a criminal code definition of hate speech, which has a very, very high bar because we realize that free speech is supposed to be expansive and liberal and cover contentious, offensive, difficult, and even emotionally hateful things. So when the government is talking about regulating and banning hate speech, they're actually talking about lowering that threshold. And that brings us to this online harms bill. Now, the caveat here, we have not yet seen the bill itself. We haven't seen the text of it, but we have seen former versions of this, and we know where the government has drawn its inspiration from. And the line they used when they tried to reintroduce Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act in 2019, or 2021 it was, rather, was that speech that is fomenting detestation or vilification? Now they try to say this doesn't mean we're tackling uh, free speech. It doesn't mean we're censoring. It just means if your speech that's uh, doing, if you you're purveying speech that's doing that, it's going to fall under this banner. Now, we have a bunch of history from the Canadian Human Rights Commission of going after speech that any reasonable person should look at as being worth protecting. Not because we agree with it, but because we agree with the fundamental and inalienable, we're supposed to believe anyway, principle of free speech and in the Canadian legal context and terminology freedom of expression. So uh, let's talk about this in a bit more detail. John Carpe is the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and joins me now. And I should just clarify uh, for those tuning in, I am on the board of the JCCF, although that has no bearing on my decision to invite John, who I have had on the show many times before he works for me, which I guess is technically true, but not really. Uh, John, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today.
2: Glad to be with you, Andrew.
1: So this is an example again. Put the necessary, uh, you know, caveats out of the way. We haven't yet seen the bill, but we've heard the government describe it, and we know what the government wants to do here. And for a, a civil liberties organization, you must be looking at that, saying, "This is the ball game, right?"
2: It it sounds like a, a step in the wrong direction, as you pointed out just a minute ago. Uh, it is already illegal to willfully promote hatred online as it is with a hard copy pamphlet, brochure, newspaper, what have you. So it's already a criminal offence to willfully promote hatred against a group uh, based on uh, race, religion, ancestry, ethnic origin, sexual orientation, uh, gender expression, and so on and so forth. And uh, that was upheld very narrowly by the Supreme Court of Canada. It was a 4-3 split decision. So that's already illegal. So what what I see here is the government stepping towards uh it's a small step towards becoming a repressive regime and what one of the hallmarks of repressive regimes whether it's today's uh, communist china communist north korea whether it's germany italy spain in the in the 1930s um whether it's the theocracies that are running iran and saudi arabia one thing they all have in common is they all censor and the governments take it upon themselves to determine what is true or false right or wrong good or evil And they will censor in the name of the public interest and the common good, uh, because politicians never violate your rights and freedoms without offering some pretext. They're going to tell you it's national security, it's uh, fighting communism, it's fighting fascism, it's the environment, it's uh, it's fighting a virus. There's always a pretext for taking away our rights and freedoms. So this really looks like uh, a step in the wrong direction.
1: One of the things I, I want to, not to put you on the spot here, but I, I'm curious about your take on it, because the government has said in the past that its definition of hate speech is going to be informed by the Watcott uh, Supreme Court decision from some years back, which we don't need to get into the details of the case. But I, I the Supreme Court has not in Canada always taken the strongest view on, on freedom of expression. And I, and I want to read a line from uh, this particular Supreme Court decision. Truthful statements can be presented in a manner that would meet the definition of hate speech. And not all truthful statements must be free from restriction. That is a very dangerous line that the government is embedding in its approach to freedom of expression, which is that something can be true, but you aren't allowed to say it.
2: Well, the WhatCott decision weakened prior Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence on free speech that, that was better. Uh, was It was not a good decision. It could have been a lot worse. Um, the problem with hate speech regulation or even laws against it is that hate is an emotion that is in the human heart. It is subjective. It is not necessarily a bad thing if it's directed against injustice or oppression or falsehoods. You know, if you hate injustice, then hatred can be a good thing. But the problem with, with laws or regulations trying to govern hate is simply the fact that it's very subjective. Uh, I could be listening to somebody, I could suspect that they might have hatred in their heart, I really don't know. Um, you or I could be giving a speech and some of your listeners might subjectively feel that your speech is hateful. Other people listening to the exact same speech think it's not hateful, it's just the expression of an opinion. So you know, rightly or wrongly, we've, we've got the law in the books to criminalize willful promotion of hatred. Um, we shouldn't go any further down the road of, of having governments regulate the Internet and uh, take away from the right of Canadians to have full access to, to information and to a diversity of viewpoints.
1: Well, and that exchange is so paramount. I mean, just to use a contemporary example, I started off this show by talking about this back and forth between, you know, Israel and Hamas about what happened in this hospital attack yesterday. And, you know, a bunch of people that are very sympathetic to the Hamas cause are saying one thing happened. It's only through the exchange of these conflicts that we can interrogate and find out what the truth is. And, and I'd say in that case, I mean, I would even say false statements are protected free speech in some context, because uh, it is through the falsity that you can then uh, establish the truth oftentimes. And uh, it's, really dangerous to me that government is trying to take that decision and take that process out of the hands of free people, because that's really what they're doing here. They're making the Canadian Human Rights Commission the arbiter of what you can and cannot say, and by extension, deputizing tech companies to do that, because that's the other part of regulating online harms is that it provides a vehicle for government to go to Facebook and say, you shouldn't allow so-and-so to say that. You shouldn't allow so-and-so to post that.
2: Well, we've seen in the last three and a half years that governments are very, very effective at getting uh, millions of, of, of private actors, of private citizens to enforce mm-hmm. government laws. You saw that with uh, the, the lockdowns and the vaccine passports where uh, the government didn't need to hire, uh, although they probably did hire a lot more people, but they, they didn't need to necessarily hire thousands of, of health inspectors because every movie theater owner, every gym operator, every restaurant manager was an enforcement tool for the government to enforce these rules. And so this is what the government uh, seems to be moving towards, is to to regulate these big platforms. And then they don't have to spend time, effort, or energy trying to shut down the Andrew Lawton show or the weekly Justice with John podcast, because these big entities will do it for the government. You mentioned even false speech should be protected, and, and there's Supreme Court authority on that, yes. Part of that One aspect to that is we don't even know if a statement is true or false until after it's been Mm -hmm. investigated and debated and and you've got two or three or four different opinions and they clash and we look at the evidence. So even a law that says, you know, we're making false statements illegal, um, that we did have a law in the criminal code that was struck down in the Zundel decision. Uh, It was illegal in Canada, criminal code offence to spread false news. And the Supreme Court struck that down and, and said no. Uh, we don't even know what's false uh, until after we've had the debate. Uh, another interesting yeah. point is is that uh, and this is troublesome from what caught uh, fr- from that decision where, you know, even a true statement could be hateful and could be illegal. The criminal code of Canada in criminalizing the willful promotion of hatred says expressly that truth is a defense. So if, if you made some nasty comment about some group based on, skin color, gender, whatever, if that, you know, uh, if that statement happened to be true, that would actually be a defense in a criminal prosecution. Uh, Sounds like it's not going to be a defense when the uh, human rights bodies get involved
1: yeah, and that, that's the big danger, is all of a sudden we're, we're taking a lower evidentiary threshold, and and also it's it's a civil proceeding. So then you add uh, the burden of proof aspect changes from from criminal as well, and the stakes are very high uh, for people who will get their lives dragged through the ringer. We've seen what happens when these human rights commissions have had free reign, like the Alberta Human Rights Commission going after Ezra Levant and the BC Tribunal going after Mark Stein. And you know, to go back to something I, I've talked about on the show in the past, but kind of just was swept in very quietly in Canada. And I think it was the last federal budget or two years ago. They reintroduced a, a criminal provision uh, banning Holocaust denial. And, and I think this is probably the perfect example of where the free speech discussions go off the rails, because I will say on, the, on principled free speech grounds, I oppose this. I find Holocaust denial to be deplorable and wrong, but I do not think it should be illegal. But the government will often use the emotional reactions people have to certain speech as a way to really, as a cudgel, to justify banning it in the same way as that uh, Mike Ward case in Quebec, where, uh, you know, yes, it's difficult to stand up and say, I defend making fun of disabled 12-year-olds, but it's not that I defend the act of doing it, it's I defend the right to do it.
2: Yeah. But well, that's that, that's where that's where the rubber hits the road. Incidentally, I like you. I, I find the Holocaust denial to be vile, vile speech. It, it disgusts me and it, it outrages me. And I actually testified at a, a parliamentary committee to not amend the criminal code regarding Holocaust denial. And the only reason for that is because the government should not be in the business uh, of determining historical truth or falsehood, period. It's not the role of the state. And once you have the government doing that on one issue, uh, that, it grows like a cancer. The other interesting thing is that the, the groups lining up uh, so far, this is from a CBC story that I read the other day, uh, the Centre for Israeli and Jewish Affairs and the National Council of Muslim uh, Canadian Muslims and the Chinese-Canadian National Council, according to this story, want legislation to uh to, to regulate and then arguably punish if you violate the regulation to regulate and punish uh, websites and new emerging platforms and if we go down this road if we take any step here the the the, the number of of groups lining up what's going to happen is in instead of just engaging in debate and and explaining you know based using facts and logic and evidence instead of making your case and trying to persuade people, instead of engaging in debate, you're going to see more and more groups lining up, going to government and trying to get the government to shut up their opponents. And that's that's fascism in practice.
1: Yeah, and that's the, the other part of this is that even if you fundamentally agree, which I, I don't, and I, I don't gather you do as well, that there should be a, a limit to protect against hateful speech that is lower than the threshold now. The yeah. logical question is, who do you trust to be the authority to determine that. And that is where we get, I mean, this is a government and I don't like going back to this, but this is a government that froze its political protesters' bank accounts. Like this is not a government that I trust with the switch to censor people's opinions and to censor people's expression of those opinions.
2: And it's it's, it's broader than that. Uh, there's there's a lot of people applaud. I remember once I, I saw a video clip, uh, Bill Watcott, very outspoken uh, social conservative activists who articulates his viewpoint in ways that most social conservatives don't even like it. But, you know, he's got his free speech rights. I saw him get arrested and handcuffed. This is about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. He was at the uh, University of Saskatchewan or University of Regina. I forget which. And uh, he was handing out pamphlets on on, on campus and uh, c- critical of, of homosexual behavior. And um, he was arrested and handcuffed and taken off campus in a police car and the group of students applauded. And I thought to myself, you are very short sighted because what if there is this massive religious revival in Canada and two thirds of Canadians are fervent, believing, devout Muslims, Christians, Orthodox Jews, whatever. Would these same students want a uh, fundamentalist religious government to have the power to censor their speech? They don't think about that, but they should.
1: Yeah, very, very well said. John Carpe, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah, and I, I expect the JCCF will be out in full force on this because this is a, a fundamental free speech question. And uh, the government will do what it did when it introduced the Emergencies Act. They'll say we're rete- we're protecting your charter rights. We're specifically protecting freedom of expression. And all of the do-gooders out there will say, "Oh well, they that that nice man with the nice hair uh, said that they're protecting free speech. So I guess it's fine." And it and or the one you'll hear, which is so annoying. And I apologize if you've said this, but I don't actually apologize. Uh, When people say, well, there's a difference between free speech and hate speech. What is the difference? What is the difference? And where do you draw the line? I could go out on the street and uh, give, I don't know, 10 people interviews and streeters. And maybe we'll do this when we see the text of the bill and ask them if this thing is hate speech or if it's free speech. And we'll come up with whatever the list should be. And I bet everyone's going to have a different line. On that. Maybe you've seen going around the internet that old uh, PETA billboard about like a list of animals and it starts with a uh, cat and a dog and then it goes all the way to a chicken and a fish and it says, Where do you draw the line? And one cheeky guy kind of put it between uh, horse and cow and said, Right there. But uh, the whole point is people are going to look at that and have a different line on what is meat and what is a pet, just as people are going to look at verbal expressions or written expressions and have a different line on what is free speech and what is hate speech. So as a society, we have an obligation to have the most expansive parameters necessary so that as individuals, we can decide and debate and maybe scream at each other and maybe say that position is unwelcome in civil society, but we decide that as members of a civil society. And there is a fantastic piece written many years ago, I think in the 1920s, by Lord Moulton, called The Domain of Manners. And the domain of manners, or it might be the realm of manners, I I forget which one, but basically it's that a society's freedom is really assessed by how large the gap is between the things you can do legally and the things you will do morally. And the whole point is that society should have a very, very wide, wide range of things you can legally do, and then it governs itself appropriately to have a narrower view of the things you should do. And I think the uh, real magic of that is that we forget that being able to do something is not the same as being required to do it. It can be legal to deny the Holocaust while also being morally acceptable. It can be legal to do any number of things that we would just not ourselves want to do. And to give you an example of this, how many of you would commit murder today if it were not illegal? Murder is not wrong because it's illegal. It's illegal because it is wrong. And that is not to say that we shouldn't have a prohibition on murder. Absolutely, we should ban things that violate the rights and liberties of others, which is where we should draw the narrowest possible parameters of what is legal and what is illegal. That is it for me. We will be back tomorrow to close out the week here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're listening to or watching True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show.